Welcome to Truly Fit. Welcome to the Truly Fit Podcast, where we interview experts in fitness and health to expand our wisdom and wealth. I am your host, Steve Washuda, co-founder of Truly Fit and author of Fitness Business 101. Quick housekeeping here. I did not put out the episode on Monday. The person who was uh, interviewed for the Monday podcast is having a book come out in a few weeks, and they wanted me to hold the podcast until the book release. So I decided to pull it off last second, didn't have a podcast ready in the works, and there was just no podcast on Monday. As a reminder, Mondays are the interview episodes. I get somebody on who's a fitness or health or business expert or medical expert to come on and talk about one particular topic that could either help the general public out in those areas, or that could help people who work out in fitness or health or business or medical. And this is going to be the latter. The next person who comes on Monday, I should say, is going to help us with public speaking. We're going to go over why people struggle in public speaking, why it's important, the cues and mannerisms that you should be concerned with that maybe you're doing that show that you're not a good public speaker. I'm going to ask her questions like, hey, should you just be yourself? Should you develop a public speaking personality? It's going to be fantastic for everybody, especially people like personal trainers and fitness professionals who need to be on camera all the time now with Instagram and the growing technology. Now today, I'm going to talk about something that is trending. This is going to be a short episode, about 10 to 15 minutes. And that is ACL injuries in women. Women are four to six times more likely to get ACL injuries. It's been all the rage now in the news recently because the Women's World Cup is on. There's been a bunch of injuries in the Women's World Cup with ACL injuries. So you'll see some good articles about it. I'm going to go over the the some of the key issues in why these ACL injuries are apparently happening, the things I agree with that, let's say, orthopedic doctors and specialists talk about and things I don't agree with. So first, are, you know, th- there are non-modifiable things. So we have you know hundreds and millions of years of human evolution and that shaped our genetics, things like the Q angle and just the way the ACL inserts it, it sometimes can be different. And that, th- those are things that you, you can't necessarily change. We have to understand that when it comes to all injuries, but especially in this case with women and ACL injuries. Then we have the, the, the actual modifiable biomechanical aspect, and, and that is muscle imbalances. As, pers- as a personal trainer, I see muscle imbalances all the time. I can look down at my body and see muscle imbalances all the time. They don't matter as much to me because I'm not an athlete, but you'll see that a lot of times people have, you know, their, their quad to like glute hamstring strength, what we call, you know, sort of posterior to anterior strength in the legs is is very far off and there's huge imbalances. And what that causes is synergistic dominance. And then that sets off, that's, that sets off a, a, a cycle of a spiral downhill of bad things that are going to happen from there. So working with athletes as a personal trainer, as a physical therapist, as the athletic trainer to make sure there aren't major muscle imbalances is certainly important for almost all injury prevention and, and also ACL injury prevention as far as far as they know now. Uh, dynamic warm up. This is maybe the most important part. Uh, they've done studies where they had 14, 18 year old girls in Southern California. Uh, I forgot exactly how many girls, but it was a fairly large study. And they found out, uh, instituting this dynamic warmup, uh, showed a 88% drop in ACL injuries. And they said, well, that can't be right. That number's too staggering. We thought it'd be 30 or 40%. Well, they did it again. It was 72%. And since then they've done it four or five more times and it's always been over 40%. So the dynamic warm-up works. The problem, one of the reasons why the dynamic warm-up doesn't work, which is hinted at it in a bunch of articles that I've read, and I, and I also agree, is that you could you could put out a program for a coach as the athletic trainer or a personal trainer or or whoever is putting this this program together. That doesn't mean the coach is going to adhere to the program. So if there's not compliance to that program, if the coach isn't doing the dynamic warm-up, or if the coach is just assuming the players are doing it and they're not doing it, he's telling the captains to go out there and do the dynamic warm-up, and instead they just dick around, nobody does it, well, then then it's not going to work, right? So there there's, needs to be a level of compliance with this dynamic warm-up. That should be obvious, but that's that's really 
one of the keys here is that there needs to be overseen. It needs to be a, a very integral part of the program. Usually people just go, ah, just warm up real quick. It's not a big deal. It's like, no, it is a huge deal and it needs to be overseen as a huge deal. Another reason this is happening is, well, listen, it's just a numbers game. There's more leagues. There's more opportunities, not just in America, everywhere you go, but especially in America, as money grows, as the population grows, there's more leagues, there's more opportunity and people are starting to play sports all year round as well, right? The same sport. You didn't always have that opportunity. I was born in 1985. Maybe some of the wrestlers were doing wrestling for two seasons at a time, but Nobody else, no football, basketball players, nobody was playing a single sport all year round. You played all the sports. Each season, there was new sets of sports that you chose from. That doesn't happen anymore. If you're really good in one sport, you almost have to play that sport all year round to make sure that you get a college scholarship because you're competing with so many people. So there's more leagues, there's more opportunities, there's more people playing the same sports, which also really ties into the biomechanical aspect because then now you're having more muscle imbalances because you're working those same muscles over and over or sort of overuse of those muscles. Then we want to talk about the, the, the next time I want to talk about the hormonal surges that happen sometimes during a, a, a women's menstrual cycle. I know that people don't like to talk about the differences between women and men in 2023, but uh, they exist. And uh, that can cause, uh, as personal trainers know, issues with like laxity or looseness of ligaments. And th there's something that was talked about in an article I read recently concerning this by, I believe it was an orthopedic doctor. And I just, I don't agree with this necessarily. I don't think it's a, a terrible thing to institute, but I just, I don't think this is going to save many people. And that's neuromuscular prevention programs. I don't know all the data behind this, but what I do know is that I've seen some of the best athletes in the world with the best proprioception, with the best body control, tear their ACLs. Why? Well, typically it's a combination of bad surfaces. They slip on a surface. They're obviously wearing cleats, a lot of these football athletes, and genetics. Right? They just had the genetic propensity to be more likely to tear it, and they, they slipped. This, these are acute injuries. It doesn't matter what your, your level of neuromuscular prevention program provides as far as their proprioception or their control or their bodies. And... and one slip and bad genes, this is an acute injury. You're not going to, you're not going to stop this. So I, I, I do think, I don't want to be talking out of both sides of my mouth. I do think it's important not to have muscle imbalances for all injuries. I do think we can work on these things, but I don't think this is a, a, a fix-all problem. You're not going to just, you're not going to fix in a, what is considered an acute injury by doing neuromuscular prevention programs. And then you know, they talk about access to healthcare and exams and having a lot of physical therapists on staff and things. And these these will differentiate between uh, both the, the fiscal, uh, let's call it success of a, a league or a team, and sometimes just between males and females. So, you know, if you're in the MLS or the NBA or the WNBA, I'm sure there's a lot of people on staff who are helping people out and who are looking over these things. But if you're in a smaller league and smaller tournaments, you might not have these people on on staff. They they showed a, sh a stat that in this this one uh, championship where there was both men and female in soccer, this was like not professional level, but almost there. That 360 of the females um, they they reviewed only slightly over half received a pre-tournament medical exam, whereas in all of the men received one. So now you know why is that? I don't know. There could be other variables to that 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 I don't really know, but but I will say that. I, I do think it is important as we move forward that if sports are an integral part of these colleges, of these communities, of these high schools, of whatever it is, right, even the, you know, the Olympics, FIFA, whoever, that you need to have the appropriate medical staff. And that's not just surgeons who are doing the surgery afterwards, 
right? Because that's what they do. That's what these surgeons do. They do the surgery afterwards. We have to have people who are focused on preventative. And I don't think there's enough push in the preventative area. And sometimes there's just not enough studies done too. And I know there's uh, the the woman who wrote a really good article or was, excuse me, who the, the article written on ESPN.com and the woman who was quoted in most of the article who was, who was a doctor said when she did a lot of these studies that she still references, they were done 20 years ago and she can't find better ones to reference now. So that's a problem too. And um, I think we need to look at incentives. I always talk about incentives on this podcast. I do uh, my little econ talk each podcast, why they're so important. Econ is just the story of incentives. And my wife is a pediatric sports medicine doctor who works at an orthopedic office and she deals with this injury all the time. So I'm not talking bad about orthopedics or orthopedic offices or doctors or sports medicine doctors or surgeons. But I will say the incentives are not aligned for them to do preventative care. Okay. Uh, they make a lot of money doing these surgeries. So we, we have to look outside the box when we're talking about preventative care for these sorts of things. And one more topic I want to hit on, uh, maybe a little bit more political, unfortunately, but I came across a book by an Oregon State professor recently, and she's recently doing a speech on this. So that's why I'm going to talk about it. I'm not going to even say her name because I don't think she deserves me saying her name, but the book is called Special Admissions, uh, How College Sports Recruitment Favors White Suburban Athletes. What a crock of nonsense. If sports do nothing else, we talk about incentives on this podcast, sports provide the ultimate incentives, and that is meritocracy, that is winning, that is succeeding. And why people get scholarships is because they're good at that sport. And why, why does that happen? Well, let's keep unpacking this. The incentives are aligned perfectly. The coach needs to win in order to keep his job. In order to keep his job, that's how he gets money. So what does he do? He finds the best players so that he can have the best team, so that he can have the most wins, so that he or she can stay a coach and provide for his family and have the job and live in the city. There's, there's, oh, there's only positive incentives to winning. So you're going to want the best players. There, there, there is no race bias when it comes to meritocracy of sports. In fact, if you look at the demographic of the country compared to, let's say, the scholarships that are given out for sports, it is extremely in, in, the, in favor of minorities compared to the demographic of the country, okay? So it, it works in almost an inverse relation in that respect. So, so this lady with no proof, with no evidence, who just has a motive, wants to talk about how, you know, the, the suburban white athletes are being scholarshiped at too high of a rate. And there's too much of a special advantage for them. It's just nonsense. It's, there's, there's just nothing in the data that shows that. In fact, you know, look at, Look at the college scholarships that are being provided. I'll give you a fun, a fun statistic here. Less than 1% of people who apply to get in Harvard, get into Harvard. If a coach covets you and asks to get you a scholarship, you now have an 86% chance to get into Harvard. Okay? That's regardless of, uh, of black, white, Asian, tall, short, what you, what you identify as, your hair color. Right? That, that's what sports can do for you. And I'm talking about that in a positive way. Sports can give you an 85% higher chance to get into Harvard if you're coveted by a coach, regardless of, uh, you know, what you see yourself as or what your, you know, you're not, your immutable characteristics are. So um, I just have to, you know, make sure I said a word or two about that because in, in these heated times, I just hate when I come across this stuff where we race bait and we put race into everything. And I believe the real statistics are something like 26% of scholarships are given out to African-Americans, which only make up, you know, 14% of America. So that would be almost double. I think 1% are given out to Asians. So, so it, this is, this is just, again, this is a meritocratic thing. 
This is how sports work. They give the scholarships to whoever's playing that sport, who's the best, who can help that team. And there's a lot of different reasons. Yes, there are a lot of people in white suburbia who are, who are getting scholarships. And there's a lot of parents who are paying an ungodly amount of money to get that kid a scholarship. Maybe that kid wasn't that good, but he's been to uh, you know $100,000 worth of camps in order to get his skill set up to that level. So the parents are essentially paying for the scholarship anyway. So there's so many things going on behind the scenes. Why we need to analyze this and just not assume that the process works out in which the best will always get selected because the incentives are in line, because people want to win. And they are in line. And when the incentives are in line, when they're meritocratic, we don't have to worry about things. So why we talk about this, why we analyze this over and over, why we try to fit this into our agendas instead of just letting sort of the world of economics play out, I don't understand. But I did feel like I needed to say something about this because, number one, it really perturbed me that this is the way the world is going. People are looking to pick fights and to involve race and everything. And number two, that other people may think this. They may think that, that college sports is not meritocratic and that people are getting scholarships who don't deserve scholarships. That's not the case. That doesn't happen. People want to win. Winning gets you your job. And your job matters to you because that's where you get money. Therefore, you pick the best people. This has been an episode of the Truly Fit Podcast. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for joining us on the Truly Fit Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your listening platform. And feel free to email us. We'd love to hear from you. Social at trulyfit.app. Thanks again.